Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, May 16th, the Do Real Men Recycle edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hello. Hi. So have either of you used the gender switch filter yet on Snapchat, which, Noreen, I know you're excited about? Oh, I'm not excited about it. I'm interested in it. I I feel like it's some nefarious plot by the government to, like, have all of our facial recognition <laughs> data, like, uploaded Ooh, via Snapchat. Yes. And we're all just giving everything away because we are so curious about what, like, all of America is, like, gender curious, where we're like, what would I look like as a man? Like, what would I look like in a wig with mascara? Like, <laughs> w- humans are so easy to trick. That is genius. I love that. I didn't even think of that. That's very, very good. I've been going down a facial recognition rabbit hole lately, Mm. just looking up like facial recognition mistakes, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. like states like Florida that have been fake facial recognition forever and the wrong people get arrested or the way they do lineups with facial recognition. Anyway, it's all a little scary, but that's a good theory. That's a good theory. Yeah, I feel like whenever a tech company has you do something fun and cool and like, you know, it's 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 always a plot. You is find this, out two years later. Is this where I get to be the killjoy saying this is some serious bullshit? That is, that like it, the idea that that being female means that you have like makeup and like you know you look so shiny, shiny and dewy, and being a dude means you're all square jawed and and hairy <laughs> and like yeah, sometimes some some ways, but like yeah, that's not. It's 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 not it's a nefarious plot to to give us weird ideas about gender. If there's nefarious plots going on, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that that like it's it's very like incel view of the world, oh like man has square jaw. You know, it's like <laughs> it's this totally retrograde while seeming to be this very like progressive thing where everybody just plays around with gender, it's actually exactly the opposite. And I have to admit though that although I've never used Snapchat and surely never will, I am kind of curious how it would make me look because I do think like, oh, I've always wondered what I would look like like that. And I've never wanted to actually do it. So, but yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. My friends were sending around photos and it was all basically like they were women putting the woman filter on themselves. Yes, and it was like, yes. oh, Snapchat just wants me to wear more makeup. And actually I do <laughs> right. look kind of good. Right, but. right. Yes. If it's a nefarious plot. And just just to say, this is not journalistic evidence that it is. <laughs> uh, it might be from the uh, the beauty industry. They're all in. They're all in coots. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's not even one of our topics. So uh, <laughs> so let's move on to the actual topics. We are going to talk about New York Times Magazine cover story by Will Hilton about his cousin who tried to kill him and what his life journey says about American masculinity. We'll talk about the zero waste movement and whether it's women's work. Also, we're going to talk about the abortion wars and the new creative boycotts proposed to oppose them. 
And then in our Slate Plus segment, June Thomas, do you want to tell us what we're going to discuss? In our Slate Plus segment, we'll be asking, is it sexist to criticize Constance Wu, the star of Fresh Off the Boat, for her sort of self pitying complaints that her series was was uh, re-upped for another season. Here's a sneak listen from that segment. I, America loves a diva. Mm-hmm. Everyone who doesn't have to work with a diva loves a diva. Exactly. So I feel badly sort of for the people on Fresh on the, uh, Off the Boat, but uh, it made me like her more. Yeah, same. If you would like to hear that segment and to support Slate's journalism, you can join Slate Plus. The first two weeks are free. Go to slate.com slash the Waves Plus. Okay, so in the New York Times Magazine this week, writer Will Hilton tells the story of his relationship with his brutal, violent cousin who nearly killed him one day. And through that story, his disenchantment with everything he learned about how to be a man in America and how it ruined him. Now, this essay is much more beautiful in the reading than it will be in the retelling, but why don't we try and just lay out the basic plot points? I have to say, I think the essay is quite beautifully constructed. I urge all of our listeners to go and read it, maybe even read it now before you finish listening, because (laughs) it unfolds in this way in which the cousin kind of hangs over the story as this brutal mystery, Mm -hmm. right? Like you see the violence coming, but you don't know how exactly or where it's going to come from, and it just kind of bleeds over the story from beginning to end. Is that that fair? Yeah. And indeed from the title, which is My Cousin Was My Hero Until the Day He Tried to Kill Me. So, you know, it's telegraphed from the very title. It's not a mystery about what's going to happen. It's just the, the way that he tells the story, he manages to kind of hold you in suspense and kind of keep you driven toward the end, even though the kind of, you know, it's a Columbo kind of situation where we know what happened, but it's all about figuring out why it happened or trying to do that. I don't know if he's quite as successful as uh, I think he thinks, but that, we'll get to that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the reason I described the essay that way is because I read it a few times. I loved it and thought it was beautiful. And it took me a while. It took me a few readings to love it. But part of what was important in my understanding of it is the way in which the violence just kind of permeated the story, but was never fully explained. Mm. Um, Noreen, what stuck out to you about the essay? The, the essay is a combination of kind of this long narrative of basically a single day mixed with a memoir of his life, which was his relationship with this cousin, mixed with kind of these digressions about American masculinity. So uh, which parts struck you? Well, first of all, I think I had a different feeling about the essay than you did, which is that I felt that it didn't quite earn its conclusions. I agree. Um, I agree. But so so let's walk through what what he's actually um, revealing. He reveals a lot about his life. So he describes growing up in Baltimore. His family is sort of you know in some ways very progressive, right? They they like have deliberately stayed downtown during a lot of white flight. Uh, but at the same time, his father sounds pretty physically abusive of Will Hilton. So so that's his background. There's sort of this traumatic childhood. And then, you know, he was bullied at school for being sort of nerdy. He has a complicated relationship with school because he's a, um, a white kid in a predominantly African-American school. And then his cousin, who I believe is uh, from rural Pennsylvania, sort of almost like 
a cliche of American masculinity, right? The cousin, like, the cousin collects weapons. The cousin, you know, I think he talks about how his cousin's body seemed as if it was made to, like, throw a football, right? The cousin is, like, brute force, enters his life. They become sort of strangely close. The cousin um, does things like holds a gun to the head of a kid who's dating, you know, the girl that Will Hilton has a crush on in high school. The cousin, like, is always a violent force. They go to college. He's like a deranged bully. Like, he's yeah. slightly out of control is the way he described him. He's a bully, but also, like, deranged a little yes. bit. Like, unstable. There's just an air of instability and, and unpredictability about him. Yes. They go to college. They That is to say that Will goes to college and his cousin kind of goes along with him and well, stays no, his in his cousin, own. I think, goes to another college, but then, if I'm remembering ah. correctly, but then kind of, yeah, just kind of moves and joins him. That Which seems like it seems like a very, very, very close relationship. Yeah. So in this way that almost seemed to be me to be romanticizing this period of life. They they are very destructive. They party so much that Will gets kicked out of school. So there the cousin's paths diverge. The cousin goes into the army and Will goes on sort of a seeker's journey. He moves to New Mexico. He grows his hair long. He gets tattoos. He starts wearing skirts around like a Tibetan Buddhist monk kind of get up situation all around and feels sort of free. He moves back to Baltimore. He has relationships with men. Right. He experiments with his sexuality. And then he... And I want to talk about that separately, me, by the way. Me too. So, I yeah. think that was sort of a... I thought an underexplored part of the essay. But, you yeah. know, obviously it's his story. He can tell it how he wants. Then he meets his wife. He, he knew his wife from back in high school, but they sort of begin their romance in Austin. And it's this very, like, Gen X kind of thing where they don't really have real jobs because he's a journalist traveling all over. She's a grad student. They seem to spend their entire day sort of exercising and cooking and being in nature. Um, and being together. And so being very, together. Very, close relationship. Yes. Sort of almost codependent sounding. And then they decide they're going to move to West Virginia after a hiking trip, or Actually, Virginia, the Virginia. Blue. Okay. Then they decide they're going to move to the like the Blue Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. God, I'm, okay. Then they decide they're going to move to the mountains of Virginia after a, a wonderful hiking. trip. Are you trip. really criticizing yourself for getting the mountain range <laughs> wrong? Because I feel like you're like it might be a bit hard there. on yourself. Yes. Am I doing too much detail? <laughs> no. There's just like I don't know how we're going to unpack it without all the detail, yeah, I agree, right? I agree. Yes. No. And I hate when podcasts don't really tell you what's going on. Okay. So they move to the mountains of Virginia um, where she can't work because she is like a PhD in art history. So he becomes the breadwinner and that's when everything in their marriage falls apart. Um, he's working 12 hours a day. They Wait, it's on... more than he becomes the breadwinner. They like lapse into traditional gender roles in a pretty hardcore way once they have kids. So she really is home taking care of the kids. And he starts to, this is what happens throughout the essays. It You feel like he's kind of jumps onto a track. Like he jumps onto kind of like 1950s husband track, you know, and it's like he, he sort of finds himself there and he's looking at himself in the 1950s husband track, but he can't get out of it. He starts to feel all the feelings of the 1950s husband track, which is like alienation from his kids. He stays away as long as possible. He goes on month-long trips. Like, he starts to kind of inhabit... I mean, a lot of this is about him inhabiting roles that feel not quite right in his skin, which is, I think, what he's saying about masculinity. It's like you have these tropes, you slip into these tropes, and these tropes are killing you. And so this is another one that he does, is the one of husband. And, and, you yet, know? and yet, I think he's... I mean, in 
his own sort of telling of it, it seems like he didn't just slip into it. Yeah. He almost sought it out, right? In the same way that he then seeks out his cousin again, right? right? Like after his period of searching, there is something in him where he just wants to inhabit it. I mean, it, it he's the one, it seems like from the way he has told it, he's the one pushing them kind of into this relationship yeah. or into this version of a relationship. Um no, to, that's you, how it definitely seems to me. I mean, maybe I'm not sure if we're quite ready to to get to our our view of of his kind of putting so much on masculinity, but to me it was like, yeah, he made choices, and every and there are times when things were getting bad that it would seem like he would, as you said, Noreen, he would seek out a bad outcome. He would seek out, he would make a bad choice. And there seemed, you know, that was part of the path. Like he sought out his cousin who had been such a destructive force in his early life. And when things were bad, instead of trying to make things better, he seeks out this terribly disruptive, violent, you know, negative energy, this this person. And like finds solace with him and, and becomes like his best buddy in this weird way of like I can't even imagine about talking with him for hours at a time, like talking with him every day. This this violent, negative man. What I hear you guys saying is that leaning on masculinity and the tropes of masculinity, he's giving himself an out. He's evading his own individual personal responsibility for a lot of the choices he made in his life. And instead, the essay kind of leans on structures, leans on structures that pushed him in that direction instead of on his own choices. That's not exactly what I think. I mean, sure, but I just think he's sort of underexplored I mean, he underexplored why masculinity fascinated him so, right? right? And it isn't just that he slipped in or leaped into these traditional gender roles, right? What he and his what he and his cousin bond over is like home repair, right? This like I, you know, I took the electrical wiring out and I redid the whole house, and here's the here are the products that I use, and they talk for hours and hours and hours about the like the tools that they use, which is a really sort of interesting form of male bonding. If you look at his career, and he he makes reference to this, he, you know, he's written sort of for swaggering men's magazines. He's, he, you know, writes about, he writes a lot about the military, about sort of heroic men. I mean, he's obviously attracted to certain versions, to exploring certain versions of masculinity in his professional life. And he does, I mean, he does sort of give you the clues, right? If you were, you know, he, he gives you his traumatic childhood. He gives you his exploration of his sexuality. But I, I, the latter question, I mean, again, this is like, you know, who am I to say? But I sort of feel like he presents it in the piece as just like, I was 22 and I thought I saw a handsome man across the way and I thought, well, why not, you know? And I don't know, I, I would imagine that that maybe wasn't the first time that he'd been attracted to men or been confused about his sexuality as an adolescent. And and could that have explained, I mean, this is very like 101 shrinky, but like, could that have explained like all of the sort of attraction to the most obvious versions of masculinity that he was trying to work something out in himself and maybe is still trying to work that out in himself, right? Like... Maybe I'm asking him to be overly didactic and talking about the role that that played. But the way he presented like, oh, I just I dated men for a minute. It felt very like not of its time. Right. Like now someone like a 22 year old might say that and you'd be like, yeah, OK. But 25 years ago, I'm not quite sure it was exactly the same. See, to me, I didn't have that response. And, and I'll just answer Hannah's question first. I don't think he was excusing bad choices 
by putting it all on masculinity, but I think he it, he sometimes went too easily to masculinity when when bad choices were were about much more than that. Like I, to me, he was telling himself stories. He was telling us stories and, and saying this is about masculinity when it, when it was. I think much more complicated than that, and, I, and that seemed disappointing to me because it had been this big, complicated, nuanced story with this, un, and then the underpinning, the explanation feels much too simple. But to talk about his sexuality, to me, that was more like I, I didn't have that reaction. To me, it was more he he is a man who tends to get into ruts, like to follow paths, hmm. to follow, more like to follow railway tracks. And and this was a period of his life when, when there was no track, when he was just off wandering and he found, you know, he found something that was actually quite meaningful to him. That was something that was like something that he, that he just found on his own, that he explored on his own. And then he got back on a track and it's for him, it seems to be getting on tracks and just doing what he's supposed to do that gets him in peril. But Hannah, mm. you have been holding your tongue while we've been talking. <laughs> no, I mean, to me, this is just the the most successful moving essay by a man of the kind you read by women all the time, which is that in your soul, you are confused about which part of you is you and which part of you is social mm. roles, acculturation, mm -hmm. that you just can't tell and you start to doubt your own, even something as deep as your own sexuality, your own attractions, like your own desires and wishes, because you just can't separate what the culture has put on you and what is you. So so to me, this, this was just his lifelong struggle with that. And his cousin, what I initially was frustrated by in the essay or what I what I found unsatisfying about the essay the first time I read it was, wait, his cousin's just mentally ill, mm. you know? So it was hard for me to think of his cousin as like standing for something because the way the story ultimately ends, you're like the cousin... I thought it was going to be about the homosexual, like his cousin found out about some gay, like something like that. But no, his cousin's just ill. But, but in the end... I, I, I decided that that was the most satisfying because his cousin is just this like unloosed, irrational force in the world that you're consistently drawn to that you don't fully understand your relationship with and that is ultimately killing you, which is, I think, the way women talk about femininity a lot. And so and so I think that's why I was moved by it because it, it it's kind of unresolved. Like I don't think he knows, but there's just kind of a distance between him and himself which which I I I could identify with and which I don't I I just don't think I've read a man quite put it that way about but you, masculinity. But you know, Hannah, the way you put it, that the cousin is a force that he himself doesn't understand or, or whatever very articulate thing you said, that's great and that's convincing. But the fact is that his cousin isn't a force. His cousin is a man, a destructive, violent man. And for me, um, you know, and, and he said in the in the title, my cousin was my hero. And then, yes, until the day he tried to kill me. But why we, he never like, OK, yeah, it's a poll. But I have to say, I no matter how many times I read it, I don't think I could understand why he was so drawn to his cousin. I mean, and even now, after his cousin, I don't know if we even got to the point where his cousin beat him, you know, pretty close to death, caused very serious internal injuries. And yet, uh, Will Hilton says, my cousin isn't mentally ill. He just snapped. And that, to me, is incredibly irresponsible. That, to me, is like if it was a force, if it was some sort of societal force, that's fine. 
But we don't hear, like, is his cousin locked up? Is his cousin, you know, not that I'm all keen for being locked up, but I want to be sure that his cousin is not going to harm anyone else. Is his cousin still with his family? Is his wife and kids okay? Like, that to me is like, it's all very well to talk about this force, but this is a human that you have set up here, a very destructive human. Where is he now and why did you let him off so easily? Well, he doesn't say, I don't think he quite says so baldly he's not mentally ill. He says he's not schizophrenic because the detail that led to him beating his beating will might have made you think he was schizophrenic, right? That he was hearing voices. What what he does do is set him up as someone who had had a pretty traumatic experience in the army and had suffered an assault. He doesn't sort of specify what kind of assault, but I... Maybe. That's not actually totally... He doesn't really report that out. He says it seems like he, you know, he admitted to that and that felt important, but... Yeah, I, I'm inclined to, to say that, like, if you've seen active duty um, or if, or if you, frankly, if you've been through, like, basic training, you have probably had some trauma in your yeah, life yeah, um, yeah. and I read it that way that the that you could you could actually sort of if you're thinking of like the traumas that masculinity inflicts like it, it's almost like his cousin has had those two at the hands of the army or or whatever who knows where that his came from deeper into childhood I don't know I mean I think I think I'm kind of with Hannah that he does he functions as both a person and a metaphor right because like we, I am sort of repelled by the persona of the mm-hmm. cousin. I'm As like, his wife was right. Like, why, why would you? Why would you be attracted to this kind of person who, who just wants to talk about tools and guns, right? But that is like, there is, I think, something in Will that like is just drawn to it in a very primal way that I'm just not drawn to be for whatever set of cultural and hormonal and biological. Like, who knows? I, I just am, I do not want that. But but I actually do think that kind of works. I mean, Hannah, you kind of convinced me more about this essay. I just, as an editor, really hated the last, like, three paragraphs or yeah. so where he gets a little bit didactic and, like, tells you what, he, he, what the lessons are that he's drawing about masculinity and how he's trying to, like, do it as a good father. I think it would have been much stronger if that had been done with a lighter touch. Like, I just recoiled at the sort of, like, teachable lessons like hit you over the head here's what this essay meant kind of thing i did too so this i just want to sort of stipulate this is a very good essay it's like the kind of piece that you read that you that yeah the the writing is beautiful that you then cannot stop kind of chewing over with your friends with your colleagues it's it's a it's that kind of piece i just want to say though that i think masculinity became an excuse in some way. He, you know, the fact that he reveals all these terrible choices that he's made, but he did make some really awful choices. You know, not always alone, like moving to the to the woods or to the, you know, to a very isolated part of Virginia was crazy. Apparently buying half of a duplex in Baltimore that was a complete, uh, you know, money pit, that was a terrible decision. Um, Especially when they've been talking about how they had no money and he's supposedly working 12 hours a day because they really need money. How the hell did they buy a house? So I mean, this is I know about Baltimore. real estate, not masculinity. Well, yes, it's, about, it's about coal. But no, really, it's like there are these terrible choices. And yes, he puts this frame about masculinity, which is it explains a lot. But to me, it's like it's, it's over easy to say masculinity, man, when, you know, there are many, many forces at work here. And masculine, it's a very interesting exploration of masculinity. But I think in the end, he lent 
and the New York Times lent a little bit too hard on that as the explanation for a lot of really bad decisions. I don't know that he's letting himself off the hook, but I'm very interested in the idea that, like, I think he's pretty hard on himself. And Mm, I think mm. that what he's trying to do in this is put on a public hair shirt. And I wonder what his wife and his shrink think about that, which is incredibly judgmental of me. And I hate when people say that about essays that women do, but whatever. Anyway, uh, (laughs) yeah. I, I mean, all right. Wait, all right. But are we wait? Last thing, are we entering yeah. an era of men like using toxic masculinity as a way of getting out of stuff? Like, oh, yeah, I know, I did this horrible thing. Like, but but it's it's the culture. The culture made me do it. You know. I mean, I don't know, and I do like even after everything I've said, that maybe seems like a positive thing. Like. Ex- Explore your circumstances, people. Explore the the tracks that you put yourself on. Explore the excuses that you use. So maybe that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I don't actually think that would be terrible. I think you might be right, Noreen, that we are entering such an era, but I don't think it's the worst thing, you know, because it can only last so long. (laughs) Eventually, people grow tired of it. Anyway, so listeners, my cousin was my hero until the day he tried to kill me. It's in the New York Times Magazine by Will Hilton. Read it and tell us what you think at thewavesatslate.com. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Before we get to our next topic, I just want to mention uh, that on Saturday, June 8th, if you are in or near New York City, I highly recommend that you take the chance to hang out with us for a special The Waves Meets Outward Brunch at Slate Day. We'll be on the High Line. We will be boozing at 10 a.m. Yes, of course. That's why you live in New York City. And we will have some amazing guests. We will have Ms. Cracker, an amazing drag queen who was a contestant on RuPaul's Drag Race. And also just uh, just the first lady of New York City, Shirley McRae. And uh, it's going to be an amazing day. You can learn more and get tickets by going to slate.com slash slate day 2019. That's June 8th. Be there. All right. Let's turn to zero waste. If you look on Instagram, you'll see a very particular version of the zero waste movement, the effort to live life without waste or packaging. You'll see beautiful kitchens with legumes, homemade lavender (laughs) cleaning products. It's beautiful and particular and very, very time consuming and mostly done by women. So how did zero waste become another lifestyle women have to execute perfectly? I spent a lot of time on zero waste Instagram last night, actually in the last couple of days. How about you guys? I so I I think of zero waste as a Pinterest movement actually, <laughs> right? Oh, well, okay, Pinterest, Instagram. <laughs> tell yeah, me, sure. So tell me about zero waste Instagram. 
Oh, I like my heart dropped. I hated it. I was so sad. I mean, honestly, like, my, like I, I, I lived in a hippie group house. I have spent my times in hippie group houses. They're disgusting. Like <laughs> the idea that they're like be- beautiful. You know, the whole point is that you get some freedom from <laughs> aesthetic labor. It's right. Like, right. The whole point of just like, you know, like, um, you know, putting your beans in a jar is that they don't have to look perfect. So zero waste Instagram just looks like every other Instagram. It's just like really, really, really beautiful people with really beautiful hair, wearing really beautiful clothes in really beautiful kitchens. And except the captions are just, you know, plastic kills the fish. <laughs> That's what zero waste Instagram is. It's so fucking depressing. Anyway, somebody school me on this. No, I got obsessed with this. I it had never occurred to me that sort of recycling and zero waste were in any way gendered, but of course they are. Okay, so I had seen for a long time, sort of bouncing around the internet, there would occasionally be a viral article about like this woman put everything she threw away for one year into one mason jar, right. and of course it's a mason jar, right? Like the symbol of like back to the farm modernity, right? So mm-hmm. it's like every modern convenience, which, yes, granted, killing the planet, modern convenience. Let's just stipulate for the sake of this conversation that most of our modern conveniences are incredibly bad for the environment. But so you're sort of rolling back the clock. Although I will say they were good for female liberation, which exactly. we do have to talk about. Like, exactly. Who was liberated by the washing machine and by the various like just earth killing things? That is also a part of this story. It was women and it continues to be women in India and China and all the various places where modern conveniences are being introduced so that women can do something else besides can their fucking jam exactly so that's step one of this right no 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 no. that's that's like hugely important right so like in this it's it's culturally fascinating that in this moment when women are like making you know just like running everything all of a sudden there is a movement for yeah just like an old-fashioned kind of kitchen thing to go on and as a woman without a dishwasher (laughs) i say like this this whole movement is not worth it and then the other thing about it if you're using zero waste it's it doesn't matter for the environment, right? Like, you can make the argument that by being... Well, that's not true. Well, no. It matters a little bit. A very, it doesn't not matter at all. Let, let Noreen explain. Well, in a very, very, very... Okay, very, sorry, sorry, sorry. Like, statistically insignificant way, right? Like, like let's concentrate on changing emissions laws, right? That's the thing that really matters. Sure, changing cultural norms does matter, and that's a slow movement, and actually getting people to feel... Like, you know, a cool person doing it on Instagram maybe does build up cultural cachet. But in a real way, like whatever zero waste thing you're doing is about feeling at peace with yourself. So it's about for many of these women, it seems to be about purity and perfectionism. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I haven't sullied the earth. I haven't sullied myself. And, And then making it about the earth allows you to not be selfish in your quest for purity and perfectionism, right? Like if it were, if you were, so so I buy glass containers to store my food in because I don't want plastic seeping into my food because I um, am selfish and want to live as long as I can, right? It's, it never occurred to me that that was about the environment and I felt like a, a doof, but like I, I but there's a way in which if you make it about the environment and not about your own like insane desire to live forever, you're a better person and and you're like a more acceptable woman because you're thinking about other people instead of yourself. 
I, I, I don't know. I just had this really strong, like, oh, zero waste explains everything. <laughs> and then there's the other half of it, which is apparently all these studies that I had never realized existed say that men are less likely to recycle men think recycling is this girlish thing that in itself was fascinating because i actually think of environmentalism as a very male thing but Mm. it turns out men get all the sort of like you know they're out in front of the cameras talking about big picture environmental things and saving the forests and all that but like actually recycling men are weirdly allergic to Sorry. <laughs> okay, one last. No, minute. I have so many. I'm just restraining myself here. Wait. Okay. So, so one last thing about this is that uh, <laughs> men, the, the sort of movement to cut back on your sort of consumerism, right? This is not actually just a female movement, which is I see zero waste as kind of part of that, in addition to being about the earth. But when men do it, it's about financial freedom. Mm. There's this very famous blogger, Mr. Money Mustache. There's a great New Yorker piece about him. My brother got obsessed with him a few years back, so I'm like on to Mr. Money Mustache. But he basically like wants you to be able to quit your job by 40 by freeing yourself from the constraints of consumerism and like you know living in all these ways where you where you use everything. But that is framed in just such a different way. It's about being powerful. It's about like conquering and beating capitalism in its own game instead of like just making having as small of a footprint as possible. That is the end of my rant on And also waste. being enslaved. It's like, yeah. I'm just so with you because it, it feels like the, the number one crime being perpetrated right now on women is this confusion between beauty, wellness, virtue, and commercialism. Mm-hmm. Like the inability to, dis- and power, and the inability to distinguish between those things and how in the end it winds up feeling like enslavement somehow like you said, you know, and for not that big an impact, like yeah. for it's, it, it's, I'm completely with you. There's like, there's kind of a broad, you know, there are, there are things that happen when the culture gets on board with an idea, like in, in some vague way. It's not that it's totally useless and it's not that the individual acts are totally useless. Like if you think of countries that are actually zero waste, like the Scandinavian countries or that have adopted a, you know, more like a zero waste, truly recycle ethos. They have a a lot less of an environmental impact. They pass better environmental laws. So it's not meaningless. But why does it have to be zero waste, right? Why can't it just be less waste unless it is about less this sort of waste. no i'm serious like it is impossible to no, be it's human perfectionism in this world. exactly mm-hmm. yes. and, it, and if yes. it weren't yes. woman-led movement i wonder if it would be that it's like anorexia of consumerism or something if you don't if you don't oh. attain the impossible <gasps> exactly. standard see you, and you that, fail. That, you, as you'll recall that was my take on marie kondo too like there are all of these these like th- these trends that that people latch onto that really are about like just being unreasonable, just going to extremes in a way that like, yeah, really paying attention to waste and not consuming things unnecessarily. Great. But why does it all have to fit into a mason jar? Right. right. And I mean, right. Like, let's do you just guys not remember. Use- no. Sorry. Do you guys remember no impact man who was the first zero waste guy? I was thinking sure fondly back. There was like a big times. Ma- I can't remember what major outlet he was in, but I feel like he was the first voice in the zero waste space several years ago. And then he wrote a book, which I mm-hmm. think was called no impact mm-hmm. man. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that headline was about toilet paper. Like right. it was gross. You know, um, it was not beautiful. It was about him trying to live without. It was like I just remember the kind of like the feeling you had reading about the the lifestyle he was inflicting on his family was a feeling of daily grossness. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, like no toilet 
toilet paper, like where the food was coming from. It was like, you know, he couldn't drink his coffee. It was like a grunt. It was just like a bear man grunt, you know. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the beautiful thing that this is now. And I have to say, like, shit. So we're now we've now been so critical of these lovely ladies. Well, here's the like, it really is. a But to me, the problem is the extremism. Like, so my, I guess, in-laws on the West Coast who live in the the in rural Oregon. And yeah, they can and they grow things and they, you know, are actually very self, um, you know, I've, I, I'm so non this word that I can't even think what this word is, you know, but like self-sustaining, self-reliant. And you know what? It, ta- it like basically that's their job. Like, yeah. yeah, they don't spend much money in stores. They don't buy many things because they make them or grow them or can. But like canning is such labor, like picking the things and working for like a solid week just with boiling pans and mason jars and like it's not fun but then yes you put all the food in the cellar and then you've got beans and you've got pear like all of these things like yes it's something that people have been doing forever and yeah maybe it's it's useful to to like keep that in mind and not be so wasteful but like it's not an accident that I live in New York City like Mm -hmm. let's not let's I don't see why you know, like we, yes, I'm all about these small changes, just being more conscious. But come on, I, if I wanted to be canning, I would be canning. Like, like, we don't all have to can, is I guess my view of it. Well, and we don't all have to shop at H&M and like dispose of yeah. our clothes after yeah. two wears, yeah. right? Like there is somewhere in the middle. Like we don't all have to be your relatives or Thoreau and, yeah. you know, and step away from getting and spending. But but like, I... Yeah. You know, I have to say, I just... This something always pops into my head that maybe isn't relevant, but I remember once being at a store in England with my mom and dad, and it was a supermarket where they would just they just had the plastic bags out. They've changed now because of the there's, the laws have changed, but they would just be take all the plastic bags that you need, and they would always take extra ones. They'd put like one thing in a plastic bag and go home with like you know twenty plastic bags when they could have fit everything in one plastic bag, and it enraged me. I was like, why do you do that? And they said, well. They're there. Why should we do without? We've never had anything. Why shouldn't we get a bag? And like that was silly, but you know they were poor and they just want. They didn't want to be the ones that had to give things up. So maybe we do have to like lead from the middle class bourgeoisie and like show that you know what, being able to have twenty plastic bags isn't actually a desirable outcome. Like that's not success, and it's not a matter of like depriving yourself. But I'm afraid that zero waste does feel like depriving yourself. Like, just live sensibly. Don't make it a contest. If any of our listeners want to defend the zero waste movement, since none of us have stepped up, <laughs> please write slash lecture us at thewaves at slate.com. We look forward to hearing it. You know, I, I had queued up a kind of what I normally queue up in abortion, which is to make a list of the laws in Georgia and in Alabama. And then I subscribed to The Washington Post and I took the Washington Post in on the metro this morning because I didn't ride my bike. And I, I'm just going to read you. Is it OK if I just start this segment by just reading you the, the newspaper? This kind of I felt like the straight recitation of what happened in Alabama yesterday mm-hmm. is more powerful than anything that I wrote up myself. Yep. OK, no. Montgomery, Alabama. Alabama lawmakers voted Tuesday to ban virtually all abortions in the state, including for victims of rape and incest, sending the strictest law in the nation to the state's Republican governor who's expected to sign it. The measure permits abortion only when necessary to save a mother's life, an unyielding standard that runs afoul of federal court rulings. 
Now, here's what those who back the court say. It says, so this is the guy who wrote the bill says, this bill is about challenging Roe v. Wade and protecting the lives of the unborn because an unborn baby is a person who deserves love and protection. So so that's the moment we're at, at a place where states, states in the South, also Ohio, are falling all over each other in a competition to pass the most strict abortion laws that we have seen in a long, long time. And on the other side, we have a kind of real cultural protest happening with TV and film production companies saying, for example, that they won't film in Georgia, which has become a popular location for filming, which, by the way, I didn't know. Did you guys know that? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, you didn't know that. I have a friend in And Atlanta, actress yeah. Alyssa Milano calling for a sex strike. Okay. So let's just start. I mean, let's just let's just state as the waves that this isn't this is a moment we have not seen in a long time. I mean, these kind of it's it's so obvious mm-hmm. that I that I almost have a hard time being afraid of it. Like I almost have a hard time imagine playing out the scenario in which the Supreme Court even consider taking up laws this blatantly unconstitutional. But I think like I can imagine them taking up other laws, but not these. But then I think that that is a big mistake. Like so earlier when the so the law in Georgia, I mean, there is this like weird race to make the 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 most extreme law. Uh, And until Alabama passed its law, Georgia was in the spotlight because it completely rewrote its abortion law. And it has, as Mark Joseph Stern pointed out in Slit, essentially made it so that women uh, who who take a pill to abort a fetus, which is the most common method of abortion these days, or doctors who perform abortions, uh, would be subject to criminal prosecution. They could be uh, prosecuted for murder and, and other extreme criminal acts. And then people, advocates of abortion, denied this they said no in the in the washington post and and as mark responded it simply isn't true there are so many people who are denying the truth of these bills because they seem so extreme and you have like the the alabama lawmaker who you quoted who were just openly saying this is an attempt to get a challenge to roe v wade which is clear the georgia bill is too and yet we we're acting like, oh, no, nothing to look at here. This is just talking. This is just posturing. Uh, this wouldn't happen. But you know what? It will. It has and it will. Like the Georgia law has passed. The Alabama law has passed. They haven't taken effect yet because they've got these like weird six-month periods before they actually take effect. They're absolutely about getting a challenge to Roe v. Wade. And I don't know why advocacy groups are are, are so keen to, to deny what they are really about. And, it's, and I... I yeah, I don't I don't get. Well, here there is actually a reason, a reason which Emily Bazelon will surely explain on the political gab fest this week better than I ever could. But it is it is that, you know, these the that that generally it when when the higher courts have a dispute, in other words, when there's a disagreement in the mm-hmm, higher courts, mm-hmm. but Georgia and Alabama are all in the same districts and so the the higher courts are likely to strike these bills down. So you need something a little you need something in which there's at least a veneer of a disagreement like the Louisiana law which requires 
those doctors who provide abortions to have admitting privileges at local hospitals, like at least there, there's enough nuance that there's something to debate. There's like a way, there's an inroad, like there's a way into that law. There's some place where courts can disagree with each other and this can make its way up and get slowly eroded like this precedent, which is cited. That's a labor law case, which is cited as a precedent for how the Supreme Court is going to take on abortion that is slowly eroding it kind of one little precedent at a time as opposed to in one fell swoop. Now, we could be wrong, but um, it's like whittling away. It's just about changing the conversation, right? Like, like this Georgia law, this Alabama law will never become the law of the land. Probably. It's now, no, it won't. But it, but it's now in the conversation. Yeah. And, and even little ways of changing the conversation, like in Ohio, lawmakers are referring to, you know, second trimester abortions as late term abortions. And that's not actually the medical mm-hmm. definition, right? Like that's actually when a lot of people find out about genetic irregularities. So the, it's just little ways that the conversation is mm-hmm. getting shifted. But so here's my question or frustration, I guess. Why is the left constantly reactive, right? And reactive in like fairly, in many ways, stupid ways. Like the sex strike is not an answer to to this, nor, in my opinion, is, you know, boycotting Georgia, nor even in some ways is just donating to Planned Parenthood, right? Like people on left have this ethos of like personal action, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we're just going to do, you know, I'm I'm going to like give my $50 to Planned Parenthood and so I will feel like I've done something. And that is, of course, if you believe in abortion rights, that's hugely important. And yet, like the reason the right is doing is this is they have like planned out, you know, not tactic strategy for like years ahead mm-hmm. and they're working at a state level. And why? Why can't that happen? Right. Like where I mean, sure, surely like donating to certain abortion rights groups gets you there. Part of the way those people work on that. But still, I just the overall feeling I have is that the left is always just like getting angry and kind of doing nothing. This is something that's come up over and over again on Amicus Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the law that Dahlia Lithwick is the host of that over and over again. It just seems to be undeniable that the People on the left, liberals, simply don't care as much about the Supreme Court. It's hard to get people to say they don't, but when things like Merrick Garland's seat being denied him is essentially one of the big issues in the election, people don't flood to the to the voting booths. It just seems that, yeah, the liberals don't have that same kind of idea of the Supreme Court and the significance and the importance of the Supreme Court at the top of their agenda. No matter what they say, actions don't seem to support that. Yeah, I also think this is kind of an all true. The things that you guys are saying, like, I feel like I don't have ground to stand on because I'm not sure, but I find it hard to believe that there that there isn't an entire infrastructure of pro-choice political action groups that have been working tirelessly in Georgia and Alabama for decades to prevent these things from happening and just aren't successful or don't have any inroads. Like, sure, like our our celebrities might call for dumb things like sex strike or whatever, but that doesn't mean that that nobody on the left cares about the Supreme Court or is interested in the No, nobody's saying that nobody on the left cares about the Supreme Court. No, nobody nobody in their right mind would say that nobody on the left cares about the Supreme Court, but evidence support, including like the 2016 election, when there's a clear reason to be very concerned about the Supreme Court and 
apparently liberals didn't all vote. I well, mean, I also think it's like the way the electoral map works. Yes, right. Absolutely. Like the electoral college. Yeah. yeah if you, I mean, even most Republicans don't care about abortion as much as the sort of extreme wing of the party does. But that's the base, right? Right now, the extreme wing of the party is the base. And if you need those people to get out and vote, that's how you're going to do it is by making abortion an issue in the campaign. And the the way that population distribution works in the United States means that, like, even if you care a ton about, you know, abortion rights in the Supreme Court and you live in New York, like, you can't do yeah. that much about it. And not to sound like, I mean, I know this, this episode I've liked about six times said, as a piece in Slate wrote, um, but Lily Loughborough has a really strong piece in Slate today about how these bills, these these things that pass in places like Alabama and Georgia can be traced to these increasing um, steps that Republicans take to, for example, in Georgia, disenfranchise large sections of the population, that the now governor, Brian Kemp, was doing all kinds of tricky things when he was the secretary of state and was running for the governor of Georgia. It's like we seem even, you know, and in Lily's piece just lists a whole bunch of these small little things that you can just kind of write off as, oh, I know that's just some little uh, little thing that happened in one state or that's some little sin. That's more just like a procedural problem. But there's just a whole pattern of these things in many parts of the country, predominantly the South, but that we, sh- you know, we can't just write these off as like crazy people being crazy. These are real threats. And I yeah, I understand the Georgia law will be challenged and, and the challenge will almost certainly pass or the, the law will not be allowed to. But the fact is the legislature of Georgia passed a, an insanely restrictive bill and Alabama did. And all across the country, there are these bills that are passing. And we can't just act like, ah, eh, you know, no biggie. It is a biggie. And I, it's, it's, it's maddening to me that we are all so reasonable. Like, no, nah, that's not going to okay, happen. Okay, so what do we do? I, I mean, don't know. Can we, can we talk specifically about the, the yes. r- mm-hmm. response of independent film companies? Because mm-hmm. that to me is a, is, it, it's a good place to discuss the what do we do because it raises the issue like we're essentially creating two Americas where you have one America that's it, – it was so like the cultural elite – utterly dismissive of this back-ass words place, which Stacey Abrams pushed back against. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. she said, please don't do this. I mm-hmm. mean, partly just out of love of her state, mm-hmm. but I think there must have been some part of her which might feel that this is this is not quite the right way to go, yeah. to kind of set up a war between the tweeting cultural smug elite who make movies and back ass words, Georgia is not going to help. Now, I'm not saying it's not going to help. I'm just like that was that was the feel underneath this David Simon versus Georgia campaign. I, I do think there's there's one there's a, an important distinction between even the chances of a boycott in Georgia and what happened in, say, North Carolina. When North Carolina passed its bathroom bill, its its anti-transgender bathroom bill, there were a lot of calls for boycotts. And they were from individuals because it was about things. Yes, there were things like the NCAA was going to, you know, not hold a tournament. There were were threats like that. But it was also a lot of individuals saying, I'm not going to go to North Carolina. I'm not going to spend dollars in North Carolina. And that would affect a lot of people with the motion picture industry. It is basically a few controllers at 
few big companies and smaller companies, you know, people, independent producers like Mark and J. Duplass, Christine Vachon, David Simon, they can say, I'm not going to make my shows in Georgia. But the really big companies, uh, you know, the big trade industries, they are not saying we're not going to make our, our movies because, you know, it's it's, it's it, there are many, many reasons to make movies there including most of all big tax incentives. So it, it's just not the same kind of broad-based boycott. It's basically in the hands of a few people, and I just don't see it even working as well. I think I, Stacey Abrams' view is much more convincing to me than those people who in North Carolina said don't boycott. That It's different. I also think that it has the potential in the long run to be counterproductive, right? I totally understand the impulse. You know, why would we reward a state that is doing this and yet at the same time if what if what is creating the political conditions in our country for this kind of thing is the increasing sort of um isolation of certain poor areas that then sort of double down on um frankly retrograde values if if what we're trying to do is like choke off any economic stimulus to certain areas of the country that just only makes them more isolated more likely to see this all as a culture war and if it's a culture war and the hollywood liberals are you know are are like hurting their livelihood then they're going to fight back it just seems like a recipe for everyone just doubling down on their own side and the conditions that have created this just getting worse yeah yeah i i mean and i don't know what to do i think really Saying what's in these bills is something important, not denying what's in them. And yeah, you know, talking about the chances, it's not irrelevant that there's very little chance that they will actually take effect. But these bills passed and they have what just what they have conditions in them they have that are really hard to believe. And yet they're there. And I just think like being realistic about what these things are saying is important. Yeah. All right, listeners, we need some good ideas. All of you activists out there, what should be done? If these aren't quite the perfect ways to respond, if you don't want to deepen the cultural divide, what are good ideas of what one can do in the face of this unprecedented assault on abortion? Please write to us at thewaves@slate.com or tweet at us at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, and at Hannah Rosen. Okay, our recommendations. Noreen, you want to go first? So... I'm recommending what has now become a cliche for Slate podcasters to recommend. I think you recommended it, Hannah. I think your husband recommended it. Someone else did as well. And I that the reason I read this is because of all the Slate recommendations. But um, This Could Hurt by Jillian Madoff. Madoff, M-E-D-O-F-F. Yes, yes. <laughs> Finally, I, I, I win. T- I tore yes. it through it this weekend. What a great book. So it is... It is a a sort of humane look inside an HR department at like a data and analytics like polling company, just the most corporate environment possible. And it's an HR department sort of in disarray and like, frankly, the entire department behaving inappropriately during (laughs) the economic downturn. Um, it's great. If you work in an office, you think about all these things that are so stupid and corporate jargony all the time. And and yet they are the stuff of your life and the way that your personal life, like, of course, bleeds into your work life and your work life, of course, bleeds into your personal life. And it, she sort of takes the tools of 
I don't not a chiclet, but like like a Jane Austen sort of view of the world, right? Like social novel, and applies it not to people's love lives, although you know romance is a theme in the novel, but to their work lives and just and and the way that an office can become its own ecosystem. So if you are at all interested in novels of work, or if you work in corporate America and know that everyone has more of a soul than um, they are allowed to express, this could hurt. Great novel. Wow. It's a very tender and strange and just such a delightful book. Yes. I'm completely with you. Yes. Um, okay. So I'm going to recommend two books, one book which I'm reading, which I love, uh, and another book which I want to read and am deeply interested in. The book which I loved is called Milkman. It's the third mm. book by Anna Burns. It's simultaneously about Ireland and Me Too. It just uh, an oppressive relationship between a young woman and an older man. Uh, it was a man booker shortlist. It's out in paperback. It has one of the most original voices I've ever read. Anyway, uh, but for those of you interested in the troubles, it's it takes place in an unnamed town in Northern Ireland and is very good at this sort of background atmospherics. And it's just fantastic. Um the one I haven't read but I'm so interested in, so if any of you out there have read it, please let me know if I should read it, is Eve Ensler's new book, The Apology. Have you guys read about this yet? It's She's essentially writing out the apology she never got from her father who hmm. abused her for all these years. And I just love the way she talks about it. Like it was – I've never – quite encountered something like this. Like, she never got an apology from her father. And so she writes one, and it is incredibly liberating for her. And I I think that dynamic is just really interesting. So I've read a bunch of reviews about it this week, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Hmm. June. So I'm afraid mine is a bit of a cliche because I feel like about a thousand times this year I've recommended things that I've listened to on the BBC iPlayer radio. But The most amazing of them all, something that I was absolutely obsessed with and cannot recommend highly enough, was something I never thought I would, certainly never, never will read, but never thought I would even experience in any format, was War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. (laughs) And it was done on the BBC in 10 one-hour episodes, and I was absolutely transfixed, and I kind of understood the appeal of this amazing book and it's much too big for me to ever read but now I have a sense of what it achieved and 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 just the gripping story that it told and I just can't recommend it highly enough it has some great British actors Patterson Joseph, Leslie Manville, John Hurt, Alan Armstrong, Harriet Walter and then some whose names I honestly didn't know but who play the sort of the women of the family and who are really amazing it's beautifully done it's this, I don't, it's this new book. I don't know if you've heard of it, War and Peace. Uh, and it's in 10 parts and it's just fantastic. That sounds great. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, our production assistant, Alex Barish. For June and Noreen, I am Hannah Rosen. And The Waves will be back with you next week. 